Hey you. Yes, you. You with the face. You drinking your morning coffee or tea. You're choosing to listen to Miss Radio Podcast this morning. Or afternoon or evening. And I thank you. Thank you so much for your continued support. And, um, oh yeah, my name's Angela Gonzalez. And today's episode is three nonprofits, two communities, one graduate student with Charles Montessa. Hope you enjoy. Well, hello, Charles Montessa. Well, hello, Angelo. How are you? Not too shabby, as the Brits would say. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Miss Radio, man. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. What are you up to, man? Um, I mean, right now, just trying to juggle the different things I've been trying to juggle for some reason that I put myself through. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I don't know why I do this to myself, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy body, eh? I mean, it's like it, it's it's like it's not overwhelmingly busy. It's just a matter of knowing when to um, like how to organize things so that things get done the most effectively, right? And so it's like it's like one of those things where like, it's more like it's more like a time management issue than there being too much things to do issue. I think, or at least that's what I tell myself. So, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. about perspective for yeah. sure. Well, cool, man. Are you are you at your casa right now? Somewhere? Yes, I am. I uh, I made myself a little office space, sort of, to kind of be able to work on like other stuff while you know, to be able to do like, cause like I'm so used to doing work like outside of my house. Like I love cafes and coffee shops stuff like that, but like it's so much more difficult for me to get work done at home, which I think is part of the issue. And so I had to. Um, try to design a space where I can get into the game of focusing. Um, so it's interesting. Um, so yeah, without further ado, uh, I'll give us a, a countdown, and then we'll we'll kick it off. Okay. Sounds good, man. All right, five, four. I'm having some peanut pineapple and uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? A yogurt. Oh man. Uh, three. Uh, two. Uh, are you having any food? Uh, just tea. That's all I'm having. Okay. Green tea? Green tea. All the way. One and a half. One. And we're live. This is Miss Radio. I'm your host, Angelo Gonzalez. Today we have with us Charles Montessa, uh, Miss Student in the IPD program, correct? Uh, MPA. MPA. The other half of the IPD. Oh, gosh, dang. I had I had one job. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, well, cool, cool. Uh, yeah. So, without further ado, today we're going to be discussing Mr. Montessa's uh, work. He is quite busy with three internships across the board um, in in the Monterey Bay Peninsula area. He's currently located in Salinas, and um, yeah. Without further ado, Charles Montessa, how you doing, Charles? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Not too shabby, as the Brits would say. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty good. I'm uh, eating some pineapples, getting down on the pineapples here in Texas. So I love the pineapples. Word. Well, so let's get down to brass tacks. So how, how did you come across these, uh, these internships, these nonprofits, um, and, and what urged you to, to work with them? Well, so 
every time I tell this story to myself, it's kind of funny to me how this all kind of started because I never thought myself going into this kind of path. It just kind of happens. You know, a lot of people tell you like when you go to undergrad, right? It's like, don't, um, you don't have to worry about planning your entire future because it sort of just kind of reveals itself. And I feel like that's sort of what happens. Um, like about maybe a year or so after undergrad, I was like every, any other, you know, fresh out of college person was I was not sure of what I wanted to do. And I just happened to think, hey, maybe I should just volunteer with an organization just to kind of get my feet wet, to give myself some time to really figure what I want to do. And I landed with this kind of small tech-based um, nonprofits uh, out of, based out of Salinas that I, um, which was really gave me my kind of first exposure to nonprofits here. And there, I, I kind of did a lot of writing for newsletters and stuff like that. But that's where they kind of where I started to learn more about sort of the people that make up the nonprofit sector in Monterey County. And the one thing I've, I I never realized was that the nonprofit sector here is, the, I think, the third biggest sector after government and ag, um, third or fourth. And it's like, it's incredible how much, and people say, like, I'm not sure how good this number is, but people say there's over 400 nonprofits of some of some sort here in Monterey County, which is crazy to think about. There's more and more people trying to do their own things here. And it's just, it's just crazy how big and yet unnoticed nonprofits play a role here. And when I was there volunteering, I had the, um, the ED of the, of the, um, organization was cool about him is that he started the nonprofit two years into unemployment which was really cool and he just really wanted to do something for the community and so i just saw how passionate he was into sort of um kind of having the impact that he wanted to have in his community and that really inspired me and when i started working there i started realizing how like there's all these nonprofits, there's all these people who are trying to do good in this community, and yet there seems to be a lack of resources um, for these nonprofits here locally. If you go to any big city, if you go to like San Jose, you go to LA, you go to New York, there are often these, you know, nonprofit centers, right? There are these leaderships, there are these big organizations that are really helping lead um you know the sector in these areas and we didn't really have that here at least not in the sense that people really need it mm. and mm-hmm. so it's interesting so like to make a long story short i made friends with the then americorps volunteer coordinator there we both shared the same sense like there's not enough leadership happening in terms of like not necessarily leadership, just not enough resources for these community members who are really working hard and we kind of threw this idea of maybe we should start our own nonprofit resource center you know, it just kind of mm-hmm. it kind of came about, and then one day he met two nonprofit consultants who have been working in this in locally for the last past thirty years, and they happened to share the same idea. Mm. And, and so, what you said this this gentleman was a from Mer- AmeriCorps. Yep, he was AmeriCorps. He was AmeriCorps uh, volunteer. He was just out of CHUMB. Uh, he just happened to work in as volunteer coordinator, and he saw the same issues that I was seeing. And so we ended up meeting these two consultants and what came about it was, I guess, one of the hats I'm wearing, which is Community Builders from Monterey County. And basically it's our mission to make volunteering more accessible is what we say. Um, and so we're a volunteer resource center and I've been with them for the last about three years. And that was really my first exposure towards like grassroots nonprofits, grassroots community organizing, and what it takes to really build um, a community 
resource from scratch. And that's sort of where I kind of dovetailed and started my career in sort of impacts the impact space and nonprofits. And it's probably the reason why I even decided to go to MISS in the first place. So you were talking about um, this connection between yourself and this, this gentleman who was fresh off his experience with AmeriCorps. Mm-hmm. Had you had any experience with AmeriCorps by chance, or was it just coincidence? Are you from Salinas? I am from, born and raised in Salinas, and so it's it's funny bringing that up. It's like I you know I I grew up here, and I kind of so my friend um he's he's from the he's from the Central Valley, so he he didn't grow up here, but he sort of um so I had no I had no connection to AmeriCorps before. I didn't I knew about it, but this was my first time really meeting someone who worked with AmeriCorps. And so it was kind of, um, it was interesting just, just to be able to meet him and kind of talk to him. Cause it's always interesting to talk to people who are not, who are not from here or they're not born here and they live here and seeing their perspective of sort of the, um, the different issues that we have here locally. And so that's sort of, I think something interesting about AmeriCorps is that AmeriCorps, uh, it brings, it often brings, often the people who it brings in are not from like. In my experience, it seems like not from like Salinas or Monterey County in general. A lot of these people are from tend to be from, I think, from elsewhere. And so it's interesting to bring in to bring in people in the setting of where like it's like the the work that they engage in, issues that these nonprofits often engage in, the problems that they're facing are often deeply embedded into the culture of our community. And so like yeah. the one thing like the one thing I, he saw as much as I saw was interesting is that with over 400 nonprofits here in Monterey County or lots of nonprofits in Monterey County, often they operate in silos and they, op, op, they often operate in by geography, right? There's these geographical, ge, geographical cultural walls that are in place between, you know, like South County, the peninsula, which is Monterey, Seaside, and Salinas. These are all different, very different cultural places with their own institutions and their own ways of thinking seeing problems and that's sort of how nonprofits here sort of came about or at least that's what i've seen like the the a very strong operating mindset i feel like that nonprofits have and so when we mm-hmm. so when we were thinking about this nonprofit resource center this is something that we were thinking of in terms of like there really needs to be a single source of resources to kind of connect across these uh, kind of disparate uh, siloed operating systems in in the um, locally, and it's still it's still it's still an interesting problem that we face. Um, so my friend, unfortunately, he he moved on from organization. He uh, he ended up working at a different nonprofit here locally. But I'm still involved with community builders, and one of the things that we we've noticed is is that there's a lot of things going on here, but not everyone is kind of privy to what's uh what everyone's doing and so it's always been our mission to sort of be that that kind of resource of knowing what everyone's doing or all the needs are and it's something that people have told us they're really excited about especially when it comes to volunteering if a couple years ago if you asked like how do i volunteer locally there was no one easy answer for you when i was looking for volunteer opportunities i looked up an entire list that was put up by the county government and I literally would click one by one the links, either the finds, there's no way of contacting these people. The, the website is outdated. The information is outdated. They did not list um, how you can even volunteer or, or who you even contact. 
And so it was, re- it was really, eventually, I think I found 30 or 40 of these after I eventually landed on the one that I ended up starting with. But um, it's definitely a need that people have told us about. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I noticed that I was looking on the, the community builders from Monterey County website. And there is that galaxy digital mm-hmm. platform that you guys have. And, um, you know, it, they have like a, a needs section established and also like a COVID-19 volunteer response, um, based on those needs. Um, so anywhere from like helping kids pack veggies at the Rancho Cielo youth campus, all the way to, um, you know, food for the homeless with community builders from Monterey County to mask makers for community hospital of the Monterey Peninsula. Um, all kinds of, you know, uh, stakeholders that are involved mm-hmm. at the NGO level all, all across um, the county, uh, which is pretty, pretty unique. I, I surprised I haven't come across this, um, but yeah, that, that in, in an effort to create like that platform for organizations to, you know, just meet, share information, you know, um, and, and really, you know, tackle those community needs um, from all different angles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned how uh, communities can be siloed um, based on on their needs um, and 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 their their goals at each NGO. You know, you you get sometimes like the same uh, goals in mind, sometimes very different. So for for you, Charles, what were uh, what what did it, all these internships have in common that that spoke to you? What what's the common thread here between uh, community builders, new story, and uh, Inkart? What's interesting about all of these are brand new endeavors trying to do something very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all it was kind of an accident, but. These are all grassroots organizations with very ambitious ideas. And so just to, I mentioned community builders, New Story Charity um, is a San Francisco-based nonprofit that is 3D printing houses to fight homelessness. And they've done a lot of work in Latin America, Mexico specifically. They also worked in Haiti. And they also they also managed to acquire a huge uh, Y Combinator grant for startups, which is really cool. And I remember listening to the the... I guess you call him the executive director or the the, the head honcho of, of New Story. And he was saying how, like, when he first started this, he was only in his mid-20s or something. And he had no idea, like, how, what this was going to turn out to be. Like, he didn't know what it would take to build a nonprofit. It wasn't really in his, this was completely out of his comfort zone for him. And then he, it just turned into something that got an intention of many different news outlets and every different uh, social impact space. Uh, they, their name is growing. And it's just, that seems to be like a common thing. Like we're all an in-cart is a, um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a two, they have two sides to it. It's about providing direct services to the homeless and other ones providing marketing and outreach and art services to NGOs and governments serving the homelessness. So it's kind of like a, an art studio slash, um, RCU slash direct service provider for the homeless that was started by Miss Alum, actually. Um, he graduated from Miss a couple years ago, and he he just start. I'm just helping them start to really prepare for the launch, which is coming next year. So all of these are people, players who all have this vision of a better community, whatever community means to them. 
but they're going about it in a very different way and they're going about it from the bottoms up. They're building it from scratch. You saw an opportunity and they're building an opportunity um, to improve their communities. And so that's really, I think a common thread among all of them is that they're all, they're all kind of facing the murky waters with certainty in that they're all trying to really start something new. Mm, mm, yeah, the, the challenges must be incredible, you know, in, in, in dynamic and scope. You know, whether you're trying to build a home, you know, um, or connect, you know, siloed, you know, nonprofits across different geographical spaces, all the way down to, um, you know, having an art studio and, and, you know, just covering the overcost. I can imagine, you know, trying to, you know, just manage that as, as, a, as something that's not only, you know, building community, but also um, just staying afloat. You know, I mean, sometimes we, we don't talk enough about how NGOs, you know, what's their goal. I, I just had a, <laughs> I had an interview with uh, New York City uh, Civic Corps, which is part of AmeriCorps. Mm-hmm. And um, had my second interview, and we the the person I was talking to they they run the urban outreach center there. Um, their main initiative is is tackling uh, hunger, and um, that initiative, if if the goals are achieved, what she was telling me, she was like, the idea is that we want to no longer exist because if we no longer exist, then hunger has been solved. <laughs> exactly. You, know, so mm-hmm. you you build that self sufficiency within your your nonprofit model eventually, and then you know there there won't be any need, right? That's mm-hmm. the, that's the hope with housing. I mean, it's it seems to be an ever expansive uh, issue. You know, not only in, in our you know backyards, but globally. I was looking at the the new story website. It was saying how. Uh, what like an estimated three billion people will be living with access to, without access to adequate shelter by twenty fifty. Mm-hmm. I saw that I was like, "What? That's man, what? That's crazy!" You know. And then on the flip side, we have this new technology uh, where you can build a three D printed home in twenty four hours. Insane, insane. So the the new the new uh, story model, the three D homes for families what's what's that process like what do you know about that so as with any kind of organization, they they are constantly evolving um what they've been doing i don't know if i can really speak to sort of what that early process was like in terms of how they chose to do 3d printing houses or where they built them or sort of what strategy it is but they seem to be moving more towards now being a cooperative player in the kind of housing sector globally and that they quickly realized as they kind of gone into and doing their work that there is a need for a sort of um so one of their big missions right now is to 3d print an entire community in mexico Hmm. And so they're gonna, they're still, they're still kind of defining it. They're still looking into it. They're still trying to figure it out. But their ultimate goal within the five years is to find a site in Mexico and 3D print the entire housing, houses there using 3D printing. And a part of that is, and what I'm particularly working towards and what I can really speak to is they're trying to develop a playbook of strategies for which they will kind of, which they'll give to the different players 
in the housing sectors from governments to NGOs to practitioners. Their goal is to create kind of this living encyclopedia of knowledge that they can share with policymakers and practitioners and how we can really tackle housing. Because the one issue about housing is that housing issues do not obviously does not look the same anywhere you go. And so like just say that 3D printing houses is a solution in itself is probably not, it's not, I think, an accurate sort of, I want to say that New Story's ultimate goal is to 3D printing housing, but that they recognize 3D printing is a solution to housing. And so what's interesting mm, is know, they're really- Not the solution, right? Not the right. solution, it's a solution. And what's really cool is they, they really seem to be tapping into context and people and really understanding um, the different needs. Um, there was this, in my research, I found this, um, uh, I found this kind of a article, a guide uh, that was talking about slum housing in Africa. And one of my favorite quotes from there was, informal sediments in African cities come in all shapes and sizes, but the common denominator is their highly dynamic, highly resourceful response to an absolute lack of other options. Mm. And so what's really powerful about that is if I were to sum up sort of like what I see as being New Story's ultimate strategy, it's to create those other options and to really, to really work with these highly resourceful. Because the one thing, the one thing they've, a lot of research that I've um, seen from them has a lot to do with, or one thing they've been looking into was informal settlements, um, especially in Mexico and Latin America, you know, this idea of people basically building their own houses as they go as a solution as a solution for their housing needs. Them taking um them taking the kind of initiative to kind of build what's not being built for them. And so it's really interesting is in some ways it's like part of it is you know part I mean part of the issues I think they recognize is is kind of the lack of resources governments policymakers tend to have. And also in terms, and so they're really trying to, I guess, fill in gaps in ways that they they kind of come across. They're very they're very dynamic organization. Let's just say that they're a very dynamic organization, and it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what's one thing to best describe sort of like their strategy and thought process. But they're definitely trying to be as dynamic as the problem housing is in the world. It's probably we're saying it. Right. So. It, it... It comes to no surprise that what you're dealing with as a nonprofit that's trying to provide housing in a global context, um, you know, you zoom out and you look at all the stakeholders and you see that you're dealing with um, government, you're dealing with, with the government, you know, of that country, the, the local government, um, the resources you can play around there between those two stakeholders, um, they are they would you consider them like a developer, like a private developer? No, no. I uh, so, if I think the way they see themselves is more in a kind of a consultancy role, almost. Mm. Um, they're definitely trying to be a from what I gather from my from from what I say because you know obviously in my in my piece of what I'm doing, it's only a one part of the greater the greater whole. I haven't really had a chance to really dig deep into sort of what they're doing in kind of the nitty gritty. But from what I perceive, it's really they're trying to be almost a almost like kind of like an anchor or kind of a mediator or some sort of kind of kind of thing 
balancing center um, from which they can connect different players and involve different players and work with different players. So I wouldn't call mm. them, I wouldn't call them a developer at all. I don't think that's what they're striving for. I think what they're trying to strive for ultimately is being a resource for those, for those who are developing, for those who are creating the policies, for those NGOs who are providing the, you know, the resources on working with communities. They're definitely trying to be a leading player in various aspects of what it takes to kind of combat housing. Interesting. That's, that's such a dynamic role. And, and I can see, so in terms of, um, I, I think I, I've seen this reappear, but the, the, the partnership with icon is icon. Are they the people that are like actually doing like the, the 3d printing of the, of the, of the structures of the, of the homes? That. So I'm not I'm I'm not quite familiar with Icon or with sort of who they're working with developing these um these different these houses, but I imagine that they are working within the context of who's there. And so it's, it's going the developer per se is probably going to be uh who, um whoever is going to be the most prominent and able to actually do the work um in the area they're looking for, but I can't really speak to sort of like the actual integrity of the actual 3D printing they've done so far. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No worries. I think, yeah, because what, what we're starting to see here and that, that 3D printing community that uh, Charles is referring to is, is uh, would be the world's first uh, community that would be in Tabasco, Mexico. Um, and these folks are living on like less than $3 a day, which is, which is remarkable. Um, so, so servicing that, you know, and then one has to also consider uh, the utilities, you know, built into that structure. So, but to, to kind of speak to the work that you're doing with New Story, what, what is your role with uh, New Story at this, this current time? So right now I am part of the second cohort of initiative called the Housing Research Fellowship. And the Housing Research Fellowship, they started earlier this, earlier this year. Uh, around January, where they started with a cohort, I think about 20, 25 people only, and they expanded it uh, around the summer. And the idea is to gather these different players from different levels, from you know engineers to policy, to international development policy people, to different these different people with different knowledge sets, get them together, have them focus on a particular research goal or research topic, and using that knowledge to build upon the living encyclopedia I was referring to, building that platform, which they want to be able to use to help housing developers, governments, and the different players in housing. And what I'm doing in particular, my role is specifically is working with um, trying to find these different attempts to develop these playbooks, these different handbooks, these different guidebooks, these different encyclopedias, these different resources, and helping them kind of understand what's out there what's kind of a best practice and the best approach for them to take and sort of how they can build upon what's already been done and how to improve upon it. So that's really, my focus has really been on kind of helping them build that, uh, contributing to that um, building of kind of a knowledge sharing platform and guidebook and playbook of strategies uh, to kind of help uh, work with um, the different players to kind of meet the big the big challenge of eradicating homelessness around the world. Mm. And, and so what have you discovered in, in your in your research so far? What's really interesting is that of the playbooks, guidebooks, and non-sharing sites that I've found, a lot of them are based in the U.S. or in Europe. 
And I haven't yeah. found any initiatives, at least so far, of a similar attempt to be that is um built or founded out of like Mexico itself or Latin America itself, which I think is really interesting because obviously when people build these things, they often have the perspective of they're contributing kind of they're filling in knowledge gaps, they're filling in resource gaps, they're filling in, you know, they're helping kind of be that leading knowledge source to really um, kind of guide policymakers and developers and nonprofits and kind of share with them what's being done, kind of be kind of like a cooperative learning is what a lot of these platforms tend to be. But the one mm -hmm. thing I've noticed is that it's often led by like, you know, the global North. It's often led by Western countries, it's often, it's often led by developed countries. And that's the one thing I kind of, I kind of noticed as being sort of, a almost a missed opportunity that they're not there hasn't been an attempt to really build this resource from the ground up by working with particularly those with lived experiences those people who are homeless those people who are building these housing in these slums these people who have experience of trying to get housing it seemed like a missed opportunity not to you not to kind of work with them to kind of establish a knowledge, a knowledge sharing platform that stems from their robust and diverse knowledge that can only be tapped if you speak to them, right? Developers, policymakers, NGOs, they can only speak to so much about the issues, but it's a prize, it's, it was surprising to me to see that there was not really much being done in elevating their voices and kind of, uh, kind of bringing them in as leaders in themselves and to really build something out of the countries that these different NGOs are trying to affect. Um, and so that's something I've I kind of noticed. It's I mean it's not surprising, but it's some it's it definitely it's definitely something that I'm noting in my research. I'm trying to dig more into is sort of how can your story really um, build that kind of sense of collaboration and partnership and working with and then they're already working with these communities. They're already speaking with these people. They're already, they're already in the grounds, and it, it'll be interesting to see them sort of kind of use that kind of culture they already built and really embedding it into the um, the, the whatever the platform ultimately they're trying to to create is going to look like. Um, kind of touching into the ultimate source of knowledge, which is the people who are um, experiencing these issues up front. The theory of everything, <laughs> by Charles Montessa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I mean, that's that's what it is, right? I yeah. Mean, if, if we take a good hard look, at, I mean, in our imagination, um, in our global imagination, we go to Mexico and we see the colorful homes, um, and we see the tiendas with with all these. I just see like I can imagine and envision rich color, you know, everywhere, you mm -hmm. know, the, the vibrant different uh landscapes and how these buildings are constructed and, and to their appearances uh not even speaking to the actual you know construction and the materials that go into the into the thing but um and then that reminds me that that western uh element that's sort of appropriated upon you know other other cultures in the housing space, um, one could think of like a Buenos Aires. It was it was a trip because I was in Mendoza in, in 2016 in um, Western Argentina, mm -hmm. and you know the housing structures over there um, completely like night and day difference between Mendoza and Buenos Aires, and it's because when you go to Buenos Aires, it's it's primarily made up of Italian and German um, immigrants. 
so you see that influence of like you know europe in those like mm-hmm. really tiny streets and everything those those um narrow corridors mm-hmm. uh built in so it's it's built into the the culture the fabric of the city itself and it, it's incredible you know when when you start to have those conversations and elevate the voices of the people living you know in these communities and and it's built into the name right it's it's a new story yeah there you go <laughs> bada boom bada bing <laughs> Oh, okay that's that's awesome you know i mean and and of course you know you'll be learning more as you go how long is this uh this research gig so unfortunately it's uh the actual cohort itself is three months only and so uh it's really short it's really concise uh it's re- it's really a short amount of time to really kind of dove into it but it's definitely fascinating to i think i think the one thing i appreciate about the experience is just meeting these different people from different places with different backgrounds um, it kind of, I mean, I only really spoke with my small group. So I have a small group of people within the course I'm working with who I talk with. But even then, it's sort of really fascinating to be around a group who's really passionate about housing. And I think that's the one thing I love about the nonprofit space in general is that when you get into the space more, whether it's from the local space or it's the come more international space, there is this common love and sense of humanity and love and sort of passion for building a better world in whatever way. And it's such a credible feeling of being around people who are really passionate and who are really interested in finding real solutions. So I definitely think your story has a lot of, they're definitely a very dynamic organization that's not going for them. And it's like, it always seems like they're always changing and evolving as, as any kind of new organization would. Um, and so it's sort of, it's a short experience, but it's, it's definitely, um, that's, I think that's going to be the ultimate takeaway, uh, mm. I've worked with them. So. Awesome. And I have to ask the question. So do you think that the, the, the 3d printing model will be attributed in the United States? It will be interesting because it'll be an interesting concept. I think there's a, I think there's a lot we we have to look into because the, the thing is like developing the housing themselves is just one piece of the housing solution. And so like we can say we'll adopt this kind of practice of 3D printing houses, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the housing themselves are going to be affordable either, right? Um, especially in especially in the American context, right? If you were to 3D print a house in Monterey, chances are it's not gonna be that much cheaper than the houses locally because of various factors that kind of go into the cost of housing, right? Land and all that. And so it'd definitely be interesting. And it's definitely an interesting idea to 3D print houses, but I don't know if in the American context, it's the particular solution that we need. Um, I've always said like one, one of my, it's, I definitely think in places where resources are scarce and where, um, and where materials are, the resources, just resource scarcity, I feel like 3D printing is a good application. Like the one thing I've been interested in is like more than just housing, like you could 3D print other essential infrastructure like bridges, which is wow. which kind of interesting because the one thing, so like in the one area, other area that I've been really looking to in terms of like internet development has been like Southeast Asia. In particular, I've been really fascinated with the Philippines is because that's where both of my parents came from was the Philippines. So I got to really kind of into looking into them, the culture. And one thing I've noticed that something like the Philippines, which is a 7,000 island archipelago, has a ton of rivers, 
right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the former communities in these islands often often exist in the most tough areas that resources can reach. Like one of the biggest problems is like you have these teachers who come from cities who have to who have to trek for several hours a day crossing ten or more rivers just to get to their students. And they can only do this twice a month. And then hospitals, ambulances can't cross these rivers. And so these people often have no access to to um to basic medical resources because these rivers pose such a huge problem and no one's really building bridges or any ways of easily traversing these really deep and powerful rivers that are crossing the islands. And so in that context, in terms of housing there, one of the biggest issues with former housing is these rivers and the connections to essential resources. Because often or not, you can't just build a hospital in these areas because sometimes they're in up in the mountains where it's just it's really hard to build as it is. And so 3D printing there, 3D printing bridges there is something I've been really fascinated with. And so I think 3D printing in itself is a very use, it's a very useful tool that has not been utilized. And I feel like it could be implemented in various aspects of like urban development, urban design, which I think can be adopted here in the US to varying degrees. And it'll be definitely interesting to see how it can be adopted in housing, but it's definitely um I think everything is it's an untapped idea. 3D. I've never heard of 3D bridges. That's is it, so. I have ha, has one been constructed? As far as far as I know, no. But the idea would be that it's the same concept of 3D printing houses. So with 3D printing houses, you 3D print the components to build the house themselves. So what the 3D printing really does is it gives you cheap access to resources. And to kind of like, it's kind of like almost like almost modular where like you can 3D print like the different materials then and there and use the materials to build a house. So it'd be the same idea as to 3D print the necessary parts of a bridge to kind of reduce the cost of building the bridge itself, which often I think is a, um, is often an issue. I know the Philippines sometimes communities will build bridges just by using a rope which is not the most safest way of crossing these bridges, especially when you have little kids crossing them every day to get to school. Um, and it's quite, it's quite gnarly, these bridges that people will build um, just to be able to cross the, bri- the rivers or they just take a boat. But it's, it's, I feel like it would be the same concept, the 3D printing the components of the bridge and kind of easing the time it takes and the cost of actually building it by kind of reducing that material cost by 3D printing it. I see. So like you, you have like a, you know, small little factory where the, the 3D printer, it's the 3D printers, depending on what you're printing, they can vary in size, right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So in, in, in the case, uh, I, I can only imagine be, building like a modular, you know, 3D, um, 3D bridge that would, that would, whew, man, but that would, that would, obviously decrease the, the, the amount of cost in the long run mm-hmm. to just have it all in house um, and then be like, boom, all right, let's transport this bridge to, uh, you know, traverse these rivers, you know, um, remarkable. Yeah. We'll have to keep a good watch on the uh, Philippines. That's, that's the thing, you know, about this podcast. It's not just about Monterey or Salinas. We're going to Mexico. We're going to freaking Philippines. We're global. We're global. global, baby. It's, it's that's the Middlebury, that's the Middlebury spirit. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, I need to go out to the Philippines. I, I've yet to go out to the the Southeast Asia's. 
it's definitely it's definitely it's definitely a very interesting context where you think of all these issues of housing um and it's 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 interesting like touching base back to like what new story is trying to do in terms of like having a platform for building uh, for kind of these strategies the context of latin america and mexico has its own difficulties and then the context of the philippines in particular in southeast asia has a ton of other difficulties and it's just sort of interesting to see sort of like they might have to create like they might have to give you a, a job man and like you can you can uh, handle the Philippine section of the world. Hey, I mean, you, if you start listening, you know, I'm, and that's 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 always they know they know where to come. <laughs> they have your email. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, sweet. It seems like you know you guys are doing some solid work in terms of you know researching breakthroughs, you mm-hmm. know, and providing that community that that you guys are looking for. Um, and then, and then that brings me to to. The third, last but not least, organization that you're a part of, and that's Inkart, and that's that's here locally mm-hmm. in the Santa Cruz and Monterey counties. Um, what, what what we got going on there? So I just started with them, I think, a month ago, and so a third hat that I, I I decided to take on. And what's really cool about them, what really, I mean, what's fascinating about them is that you have this led by a Miss alum, but you also have this led by a Miss alum who's local. Which I know, as you know, it's it's not very common at Miss just to find someone else who is born from this area and who actually went to school there. And so, what's really cool about this is this this the guy who founded the DD here. He told me he's been working with the homeless community since he was eighteen. Uh, he is a UC UC Santa Cruz alum, um, and then he went to Miss. Uh, a couple years later and the thing about at UC Santa Cruz if people are not familiar Santa Cruz has a huge one of one of the bigger homeless encampments in the Monterey Bay area you have a pretty big encampment in in Chinatown Salinas but you you have this encampment in Santa Cruz which recently I think they just did a sweep a year or so ago but that was a relatively huge encampment of homelessness and so he got exposed to that and he, he really got him to really um get into homelessness in particular and so with them it's really about services and kind of improving the different um improving the services that we give to the community so the one thing's like one one thing people don't realize is that in order to qualify as a homeless individual it can take upwards to five years of homelessness to be able to qualify for certain resources to be qualified as homelessness and it could take upwards of ten plus years to even get access to, to for, to housing services. Um, so there's this huge, there's these, and a lot of this comes from you know obviously, not well comes from a high demand for these services, and there are not enough being enough resources to go out there. But it, it's crazy. It's sort of like homelessness is such a huge issue, and there and there are various ways of approaching it locally. And I think new story, and I think uh, Incart has a very interesting approach in being both a direct service to the homeless themselves, and also being a service to the different providers who are uh, key players in the um, in the local sector. The one thing about say about them is like they really are just getting their feet wet, and they're really just preparing for a, for a launch next year. So what I'm doing mm. with them is I am one. I'm managing sort of their. Um, their writing program, which is what they're trying to start to build up. And they really want to write these different blogs and articles about homelessness and sort of kind of, sort of 
revealing the barriers that people often don't think about and the different issues and the different sort of components that make up this kind of very dynamic issue here. And then the other thing too is kind of helping them define the programs and kind of descriptions for what they hopefully to be kind of like their kind of basically building, helping build the organization scratch is almost sort of what I got, I've been a part of um, kind of helping them establish the programs and kind of helping them define it and helping them really kind of prepare for their ultimate launch uh, in 2021. And so they're definitely a player to look out for. They're definitely interesting. It's going to be interesting to see where, where, where they, what their approach is going to be. Cause I feel like it's gonna be very different than sort of what's been out there already. Right. And, and what, it, it indicates in their name in cart um, that they're 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 also about uh, visual and, and and written content design and and uh, artistry what what can you tell me about the the, the art piece the artwork that that in looking to do as well so from from what I, from what I know and kind of this is the short time I've been working with them it's been sort of the art piece really is about written developing written visual content as far as in terms of their sort of marketing and average kind of arm. So they have this, they have, they, they have the side of them of sort of helping with marketing and average materials, What they envision to do is offering marketing and average services to nonprofits and geos and these different, um, these different uh, players and helping kind of offering them, offering them these services to help really kind of, uh, showcase not only the issues they're trying to tackle and kind of the underlying components that people often don't see, but kind of really help with them get the word out and sort of kind of build um, a strong community through through visual content, through written contents, which is what I'm, so I'm helping them particularly with their written contents and kind of developing oh. that, um, developing that sort of that kind of uh, blog style, column style pieces exposés of about um, homelessness and kind of that educational components. And I imagine the visual content is going to be, it's going to play a role into, into that down the line. I haven't really heard much about that piece of it, but it's, it's, it's in, it's in there and it's part of their, um, their vision for what the organization is going to be once it uh, really kind of lifts up. Hmm. In your own words, outside of these three, um, these highly unique, very much necessary organizations. In your own words, what what have you seen? Because I, I think it helps to be very specific as well to, to the area in which you live. What will be best in order in order to uplift the homeless population in in your area? What what do you think? I mean, it's it's a dynamic issue, and there's there's so many different things you know between you know, you know, reaching out to, to communities to, to have more engagement, to have, um, you know, public policies. Um, and then the, just the direct approach of just, you know, uh, feeding people and then, and, and then also, you know, you know, giving them warm blankets in the, in the winter um, and, and water, you know, in, in the heat of the day. Uh, so th- there seems to be so many things to think of, but I guess to, to you, you know, what, yeah, what, <laughs> how, how do you think we uh, solve this intractable issue, you know? If I were to sum it up, I would say it goes down to smart urban planning and design. 
which I think is often so like my my interest in housing and homelessness kind of is a part of my my interest in kind of urban planning and urban design as a tool to lift up communities out of poverty. And often you see that the gaps that we see in resource access and the issues we see in terms of like the deprivation of certain such resources often has to do with poor city planning. Like I remember in undergrad, I did a little research paper on sort of like how certain communities are by design separated from critical resources like police office, police, uh, police headquarters, hospitals, libraries, good schools. Uh, I read a paper saying how a lot of poor communities are built right along highways that exposes them to, you know, exhaust and pollution. Here in Salinas, a lot of the poor communities are built and schools are built around farms and exposing them to, you know, the kind of pollution that comes with farming, you know, the pollution that goes into sort of the waters, the air, because uh, of pesticides. And so often I feel like a lot of the, a, a, it's not going to solve everything, but I feel like if we were to be more effective in the way we design our urban design policies and we were thinking about planning our cities, we can help at least not worsen these issues through our design. Um, and so I, mm. I think I think that's that's definitely um, I mean that's definitely a whole that brings a bit a whole assortment of issues and you know, one thing people talk about too is like urban sprawl. Well, we have water issues in Monterey County that makes it difficult to build up. But like the more we build up, you know, like it's like it's just it, it there's a lot of components to it as as you, as you mentioned. But I feel like if we were more intentional in the way we plan and design our cities, and if we were to put in the most vulnerable people at the heart of our decision process and determining how we design and build our cities. I feel like we can achieve so much good by just keeping those people in mind and seeing what could potentially affect them as a neg negative consequence of sort of our design processes for cities and city upgrading. Mm, what an intelligent round Man, did you go to grad school? Man, I, I, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I mean that 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 to me is an incredible response in terms of, um, you know, I, I would have never have guessed, and I've, I've had colleagues actually enter that space of urban design um, from from a policy perspective. Um, it, you're exactly right. You know, it's it's as if. The, the word is intentional, right? Mm -hmm. And and having those those people in, in living in our poor communities, uh, part of what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with um, you know some environmental students from this was you know retrofitting uh, communities that use natural gas in their house, and then replacing that with with uh, electric units, so that way they're not you know breathing in uh, that natural gas exhaust. Uh, missions, you know, so li little little things like here and there, that we we it goes a long ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I look forward to seeing you on an urban planning board of some sort in the future, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you seem you seem like uh, I mean that seems like a logical logical base conclusion. But you're doing a lot of great work, Charles. And thank um, you very much, man. It's it's good to have you on this podcast, and um, 
one last question before you go. Um, it's a very serious question, and um, I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time, but, and I don't want you to be embarrassed, but you don't have to answer this question, but um, do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. The Muffin Man. I know of a Muffin Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He he lives on Drury Lane. Yes, right? yes. That's the man. That's the okay. Man, my boy. Then, then I know your boy. I know the Muffin Man. Dude, he makes bomb ass muffins. I mean, I've, uh, I haven't tried them, but I've heard they're to die for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't not know. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and yeah. Um, any last words for our, for our listeners? Next time you see someone living on the streets, look at your reaction, your initial reaction, the initial thoughts that you have when you see that. Because I feel like a lot of people, even though they're aware of homelessness as not being a as being a complicated issue. I think all of us are prone to having initial reactions that will surprise us and sort of thinking about our biases when we see people. Um, I think the one thing people tend to do when it comes to homeless in general is people tend to have the sense of pity for people who are living on the streets. And I don't think that's productive. I don't think anyone can really say that's productive is to feel pity for people who are struggling. But often that's sometimes the first reaction people will have. Um, so something to think about is how it's, it's interesting. One of, the, one of the most interesting things about what I'm kind of curious with, with Incard is sort of like, what are these perceptions people have of the communities living outside um, and kind of seeing sort of like what internal biases we are not really aware of that mm-hmm. can really drive sort of our perceptions of um, what's happening. So Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> well, thank you very much, man. Thank um, you. And that is a wrap and cut. cut. So now you're in the outro part of the podcast and welcome. Welcome. <laughs> um, how did that, yeah. how did that go? I feel like I mumbled a lot, man. It's okay, man. Um it was I, I can maybe slow down your speech a bit. You you, you can go you can go, man. You had your coffee this morning. Oh, or you green tea. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, I've been, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of how fast I speak, but damn, it's hard to slow down. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm the same way, man. It's all good. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot to, to be said about this. Well, cool, man. Cool. Um, I think that about does it. Awesome, brother. And then feel free. Yeah. Share it with, with all your friends and family. All right. We'll do it. <laughs> really cool. Well, cool, man. Um, we'll be in touch, man. I'll probably see you on this Friday. Probably see you this Friday. Sounds good, man. All right, brother. All Take right, care. you too. Bye. And thank you. That is a wrap, folks. Thank you again for listening to Miss Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Gonzalez. And a big thank you to Charles Montessa for his contributions this episode. I would also like to introduce to you guys the newly founded Student Housing Coalition. Uh, The current chapter is Monterey Bay, and we hope to extend that to different parts of the United States uh, eventually. 
So stay tuned as we showcase other members of the Student Housing Coalition and we work towards creating equitable public policies towards affordable housing. Thank you and um, yeah, have a great day.